Welcome to Port City Politics. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Schachman. And I'm WECT investigative reporter Michael Pratz. And this is, I guess we should say, kind of a special episode of Port City Politics. Yeah, it is for uh, for a couple different reasons. Yeah, one, um, well, it's the last one we're going to do, at least in this format, for a little while. Yeah, so in case people don't know... Um, I am leaving WECT. We've talked about this kind of when it uh, when it happened about a month and a half, two months ago. Uh, I am staying in news. I'm moving to Charlotte. Uh, so I'll be up at WBTV up there, which is a sister station of WECT. So you did not go into real estate and you did not become a PIO? E- no and no. Good. So I'll still be in news and... Uh, at least for the time being, this will be on pause, but here's hoping that uh, once I get up there, we can kind of broaden the scope and uh, have a continue the podcast at a bigger level, talk about politics on the state level with what's happening in Raleigh, uh, what's happening in Charlotte and in Wilmington, everything in between. Yeah. And the two stories uh, we're going to talk about today both kind of have some of that state level feel because we're talking about well, first, we're talking about the NC bar, and then we're going to talk about the um, North Carolina attorney general and his rules for the opioid settlement. So what do you say we get into it? Yeah, let's hop into it. We'll start with the North Carolina state bar. Um, for those who don't know what the state bar is, this I'm sure you've heard on uh, on TV, on movies, uh, you got to p- pass the bar exam to be a lawyer. Um In North Carolina, there are multiple different bar associations, which in a lot of states are voluntary. But there is the North Carolina State Bar, which is a uh, a governmental body founded by the North Carolina General Assembly, and they oversee lawyer conduct and ethics in the state. Uh, And that is, you know, when you sit for the bar exam, that is what people are talking about. You have to uh, be up to snuff with the state bar in order to get your law license to legally practice law in North Carolina. So they are the overseers of law. And we've seen over the past two years, this specifically actually did start. I don't, uh, this story is not about former county chairwoman, Julie Olson Bozeman, um, and former attorney. It's not about her, but it did start with that because as we saw, she was accused of, uh, multiple instances of wrongdoing. Um, It started with Gary Holyfield, who was a man who lost his daughter, hired, uh, lost his daughter in a car accident and his stepson, uh, hired Julia Olson Bozeman to represent him as an attorney and ended up getting a settlement check from a insurance company for about 30 grand. Uh, Olson Bozeman took $10,000 of that money as her fee, which was one third that was agreed upon. Um, So, you know, Holyfield didn't have an issue with that. What he did want to happen next was to, uh, he had told Olson Bozeman, you know, I want two things out of this. I'm not in it for money. I'm not searching for money. I want to make the state of North Carolina install a guardrail on I-140 up there in New Hanover County where this happened. I want them to install a guardrail and I want enough money to get a nice headstone for my daughter. That was it. That was what he wanted. Olson Bozeman, after getting the $30,000 settlement from him, taking her $10,000, said, okay, we'll do that. It's going to be the rest of your check, though. So he said, okay. He said, do what it takes. I want a guardrail, and I want the headstone up there. Um, 
This was, I believe, in 2019. I could be wrong on the dates, but it was several years ago that he hired her and that the uh, the accident happened. Um, come June of 2021, uh, Gary reached out to me and he said, I have nowhere else to turn. Nobody will take my calls. Nobody's talking to me. I don't know what to do. But Julia Olson Bozeman, who was the county chairwoman at the time, agreed to take my money, agreed to take my lawsuit, and I haven't heard from her. She's gone radio silent on me. So I said, wow, okay, do you have any evidence and what what sort of documents? And God bless him for this. He kept everything, had all these documents. Um, Yeah, one big takeaway from just about every story we've ever done on the legal system, save everything. Absolutely. Save, Save your paperwork, save your contracts, any checks, make copies of them. Um, and he had done all of that, which was uh, it, it really helped this investigation because without that, it becomes a he said, she said. And if you can't prove things, it's, you know, unfortunately, we can't always report on it because I've gotten other emails that people say, hey, I've been, you know, uh, I've been taken advantage of by this attorney. And I say, can you prove it? Can you give me anything to uh, to help me? And they say no. So um, that was kind of different in this case. So I started looking into it and. I could not find a single lawsuit filed in his name in New Hanover County. So I said, okay, well, the DOT is up in Raleigh, so I'm going to check Raleigh court records. I looked all over the state. Nothing was ever filed on behalf of him. And then come to find out when we reached Olson Bozeman, she said, I retired from law last year in uh, November, December of 2020. We still have questions about that because in April of 21, we were told that she was trying to represent people in the Carolina Beach uh, fire that happened back in 2021. We heard that she had appeared in court somewhere in the Greensboro area. Mm-hmm. We heard a number of suggestions that she was, at the very least, looking into potential representation. Yeah, so either you're retired or you're not. That's uh, that's a, a little sidebar here. But going back to the state bar, uh, so after the report ran and I talked with Holyfield, um, he decided to file a grievance with the state bar, which is the official term for a complaint. We'll use it interchangeably. Um, But he filed a grievance with the state bar um, against her. He also filed a police report with the Wilmington Police Department. And the district attorney, Ben David, kicked that over to uh, to the State Bureau of Investigation almost immediately because there's there is a conflict of interest when you're in a county building, a county funded building, uh, even though the DA is elected himself, there would be some, uh, you know, at least appearances of um, of impropriety or he didn't want to have any sort of chance for people to say you're not prosecuting because she is the county chairwoman. So he kicked it over to the state, which is where it stands today. And with that little backstory, it gets into what the bulk of our story is actually about, which is. It's been almost two years now that Gary filed his complaint in July. uh, I think June 28th will be the official two-year mark. Um, He has no idea where his grievance stands. And so we started looking into this, and I sent public records requests to the state bar, and that's when I found out you can't. They won't even confirm if a lawyer has had a grievance filed against them. Um, It's protected under state law. It's not the bar being difficult. It is lawmakers literally set this into rule 
So you can't see if your attorney is being investigated for anything or what sort of complaints they have against them. It's not the Better Business Bureau. You can't look and see, oh, this is an A-plus rated uh, attorney by the state bar, or oh, this attorney has a C rating from the state bar. And it's a self-regulating body, which means lawyers are tasked with overseeing other lawyers and in their own profession, which is kind of the investigate, we investigated ourselves and found no wrongdoing uh, cliche that we always hear with these self-regulating bodies. So that's kind of what we wanted to look into. Yeah. And, you know, this is an issue that impacts a lot of North Carolina's professional regulatory bodies. We've seen similar problems with the dentistry board, with the board of engineers, uh, when we looked at issues like red light cameras that, for example, weren't engineered properly. Right. Um, and, and the medical board as well. So these things take a long time to work their way through the administrative system. And in the meantime, you can't see. And this is not the kind of due process we're used to in this civil or criminal case, because you can go into the courthouse and pull all of the civil records. doesn't mean that someone lost or won a case, but you can see what's happening. Right. Ditto for criminal cases. You can see when someone is arrested. You can see when their next court date is. And if they're finally, if their case is dismissed, that's a public record. If they're sentenced, obviously that's a public record. Mm -hmm. So... When it, but when it comes to these issues that are drawn out over years, there doesn't seem to be any mechanism in place to, you know, with all the appropriate caveats, let someone know, hey, there's actually been some complaints filed against your attorneys. Now, obviously, that would not be great for business, mm -hmm. but it's a level of transparency that a lot of people who've been on the wrong end of bad actor attorneys who were eventually, you know, the recipients of administrative action, um, that would have benefited their clients in that in that limbo area. Yeah, exactly. And just, uh, you know, as another quick anecdotal evidence, so this isn't just about one person or one attorney. Um, before we get into the story of uh, Robert Dorsey, um, I have received an email from someone who didn't want to go on camera, but I'm still going to share his story, not using his name or the attorney's name. But um, essentially, he had a home closing. He used a real estate attorney um, well, the, the buyer of a home had used a real estate closing attorney. That attorney held the due diligence money, which is basically a security deposit to make sure, you know, if someone walks away from the deal, the seller who jumped through all these hoops gets to keep the earnest money. That's what it's, that's what it's called. And you get to keep that. Well, sometime in the interim, this attorney uh, so the, the buyer walks away from the deal. The seller is now due about 10 grand. The, uh, the seller tries to get the money from the attorney. They send him a check. It bounces. It's like, okay, what? This was in escrow. Where's my money? Well, as it turns out, I guess in the interim, that attorney came under investigation and the state bar actually put an injunction on this guy um, saying you're not allowed to touch any client funds. So now money that is actually due to a home seller is in limbo and until the state bar actually concludes an, an investigation that money is frozen whether or not that attorney has it's a different story but if he does he can't the the home seller due to no fault of his own cannot get that money and as we've seen with the uh, gary holyfield situation they've been investigating this for almost two years and still no resolution. So now let's talk, let's go back in time to 2001. Yeah. And uh, we talked with a, uh, a man named Robert Dorsey. Yeah. And we had covered this story for WHQR 
when he got a settlement with um, University of North Carolina at Wilmington, mm-hmm. where there was some pretty clearly discriminatory practices. Um, and Dorsey is a contractor. He's a painter. Mm-hmm. And when we interviewed him about this, this was in 2021, 2022. He said, oh, no, this is far from the first time he's had run ins. You know, he's a um, it's a black gentleman. He's had more than his fair share of run ins with racial discrimination. And one of the examples he gave was back in 2001, where he was a contractor for the New Hanover County Schools. And he had developed um, a pretty convincing case against the school district that he had been underbid by someone um, who was, you know, connected to a powerful local family that just wasn't doing the work. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the contract for painting was, you know, you paint everything that's on the list. And this, this other person was basically saying like, ah, Brogdon Hall can go out without a coat of paint this year to save money, which is how he was able to underbid him. So it's called bid rigging. Mm -hmm. Um, And he felt like he had a really really good good case. Now here's the point. I don't know if he did or didn't because I wasn't, I wouldn't get to Wilmington for another two years. Mm-hmm. But also, it never went to court. Yeah, well, it it kind of went to court. It never went all the way through court. So, what what had happened was the complaint and the lawsuit was filed on behalf of Mr. Dorsey. His attorney, however, kept asking for motions to extend. Uh, got thirty days here, fifteen days there, where you're supposed to respond to these motions. Now. If you don't respond to motions in court, you can get, you know, the the case gets summarily ejected. It just gets tossed out of court due to no response, especially if the the plaintiff is filing civil action and chooses not to show up to court. The judge is just going to be like, okay, well, there's no case here, and they toss it. And that's essentially what happened. And after this happened, Dorsey filed a complaint, a grievance with the state bar, and come to find out. It happened over and over and in different ways. It might have been, you know, not contacting the the clients in a timely manner or, you know, just negligent work, things like that. Um, But there's multiple. If you look at this complaint that finally made it to the state bar, that finally became public record, um, they have a lot of evidence that there was some some serious misconduct and wrongdoing by this attorney. Uh, And the problem with that is, besides the the ethical concerns, it has very real impacts. And Dorsey is one example of that, that had he known, had the judge that saw that, hey, your attorney is not showing up for court or is missing deadlines, had that judge taken action and said, whoa, 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 state bar, you need to look at this person. They're not doing, they're not serving their client's best interest because they're just not even showing up. That could theoretically, prevent more people from being wronged. And that didn't happen. And as we see on this list, there are so many other people that have been harmed by this. So the the time it takes to investigate these can go on years. Uh, and another issue with Gary Holyfield's situation is, be, I, I mentioned he filed that police report. It got kicked over to the SBI. Now, the SBI won't really talk either. And obviously, with ongoing investigations, I wouldn't talk to a journalist either. I don't fault them for this. But they cannot do anything until the state bar finishes their own investigation. And there's a reason for this. And uh, Ben David, district attorney, explained it to me as to why 
they're going about things this way. And it's because in an administrative hearing, you don't have the Fifth Amendment right to, you know, remain silent, not to uh, incriminate yourself. That's not a thing in an administrative hearing. You can be compelled to answer questions by the administrative body. So any of that information that comes out during the administrative hearing can then be used in a criminal case if, and I want to make this very clear, there are no pending charges right now in this situation. Um, there could be, there, there, it could be found that there was no criminal elements to this. We don't know. Um, but until the state bar finishes their investigation, the SBI is waiting on that information from the state bar. So Gary is stuck in, you know, in limbo here, not knowing what the state bar, because the bar can't even confirm to him. Now, they will keep in touch with him. And the emails are very much, we can't tell you what's going on, but just rest assured we are looking into this. And that's that's pretty much what he's been told for 18, 19 months now. Uh, and he's getting really, really frustrated with it. But also on on that other level of getting justice, if there is a crime present here, not being able to get justice and and seeing someone. And this is what he was so frustrated about. I, I brought him in here, talked to him, and he's so frustrated that, you know, if it was me and I took $20,000 from someone, I would be sitting in jail waiting for a judge to determine whether or not I'm guilty or for a jury to determine whether or not I'm guilty and a judge to sentence me. Um, that would be the situation with you or I or anybody else. But for some reason, attorneys are seemingly protected from that sort of liability and scrutiny here. And that's, you know, the, it stands in between people getting justice and injustice. Yeah. And, and one thing I, I can say here is that this has to do with the way a lot of this has to do. If you look at a lot of these cases and what the complaints are, right? These are, you know, sometimes they're divorces, right? And mm -hmm. sometimes they're fender benders, you know, where you got to sue your insurance company. But a lot of these are civil rights issues. They're, they're issues of discrimination. They're issues of wrongful termination. And because of the way the United States legal system is set up, we don't regulate industry very heavily. Instead, we leave it to the courts, right? Mm -hmm. So it's when if you're discriminated against in the workplace, yes, you've often violated federal law. Your employees have violated federal law. But it's often up to you to prove that, right, as the wrong party. You have to take it to federal court mm -hmm. and, and launch a constitutional claim. And so we put an extraordinary amount of trust and responsibility in attorneys because they are often the only thing that allows a person to defend their constitutional rights. Mm -hmm. And that's why you get legal fees back at the end of the case, right? Right. But there, I mean, there's lots of other issues here, but like fundamentally, if you are wrong at a constitutional level, you get an attorney and that's how you right that wrong. And so the idea that there are attorneys out there who are not doing what they are supposed to do and no one knows about it, right? That is just a, an unimaginable pitfall mm -hmm. for the people who then hire that attorney. Forget the, I mean, the lost money is terrible, right? Yeah. But the, you get, you often only get one crack at these cases. Right. Um, and so it's just, it's an extraordinary amount of responsibility that attorneys have when they represent someone in court. You are literally acting as them in court, defending their constitutional rights. And so the fact that the system that oversees it is, is so slow and so opaque mm -hmm. is understandably frustrated to people who lost, you know, who lost money, who lost their civil rights. 
it's it's hard to imagine being in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually did see some cases uh, that were pending with the state bar. And it, it, it often does come down to civil. Uh, but there were some criminal people in here, criminal cases that attorneys weren't showing up for court. I mean, can you imagine going to, you know, hiring an attorney for a crime you're accused of committing, you're charged with something, maybe it's a felony, maybe it's something serious, maybe in the most extreme situation, and I haven't seen this, but let's just go there. Let's say you're being, you know, you're on death row. It's your last chance at an appeal. And your attorney just doesn't show up to court and they have a history of doing this and nobody said anything and your appeal gets denied based off of not the merits of the appeal itself, but based off the fact your attorney didn't show up to court. I mean, that to me and that to a lot of people is just awful. Yeah. And if that doesn't resonate with you, it's expensive because hopefully that person can get a new attorney appeal for a mistrial. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's going to that court process has to happen all over again. That means paying expert witnesses, paying the clerks, paying the judge, mm-hmm. paying the prosecutors. I mean, it's. The system is, um, it's enormously expensive to run the criminal justice and the civil justice system. Yeah. So it's, you know, if you if you can't find it in your heart to be empathetic about someone who got royally screwed over, know that it hits you in the pocketbook too. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking taxpayer money. And at the end of the day, I think that does, you know, resonate with a lot of people. Um, so I talked with State Representative Deb Butler, who is also an attorney. Um, she was gracious enough to talk with me about this and... Um, to be fair and to, to give the counter side of these arguments. Now, you have to imagine there's a lot of pissed off clients that hire attorneys and don't get the end results that they wanted to, um, that their attorney did everything according to the book, followed every single rule, and still didn't get the outcome their client had hoped for. Now, nothing stops someone from being a disgruntled client and, you know, nothing stops you from going on Yelp and giving a, you know, review bombing someone uh, because you didn't like their uh, their pasta sauce or whatever it may be. (laughs) So people file frivolous complaints. And if you look at the number of grievances filed compared to the number that are sustained, it is a significant portion of complaints are dismissed due to lack of merit. So I understand, you know, uh, Representative Butler was saying, you know, this is attorneys' livelihoods. This is their, this is their job we're talking about. We can't just allow everybody to see every single grievance that has been filed because, um, again, you know, you have the, the review bombing effect and there might not be any merit to that. So I do understand that. But at the same breath, you have these people who are going potentially harming potential clients by not knowing that their attorney just doesn't show up to work, uh, not knowing that their attorney is accused of taking money from a client unless the bar has issued one of those injunctions saying you can't touch uh, touch client money. And that is one of the safeguards in place. I'll give them that. Um, even though Olson Bozeman hasn't faced a disciplinary hearing committee yet or the grievance committee, uh, they did freeze all of her trust fund and client fund accounts until they can reconcile them, which seems to be a arduous process, to say the least. Yeah. So there is that safeguard in place. But I will say the number of temporary injunctions is very, very small that are actually ordered. And we that's what we went to court for um, over the past summer where we saw 
uh, Olson Bozeman, well, we didn't see her in court. She didn't show up to court. Um, but that's where the state bar was in court making their argument for something completely different. So that goes to show us that there is, you know, there's evidence of client mishandling, mishandling of client funds. And I, uh, Gary was told directly, this doesn't even involve your case. And looking at the case files for that temporary injunction had nothing to do with Gary Holyfield. So now there's at least one other allegation of mishandling of client funds. And you have to wonder, did that happen before Gary hired? Did that happen after? How many other people hired her after the state bar knew about this and didn't take action? That's the biggest issue at the heart of all this. And then at the end of the day, these attorneys who are under investigation keep their law license active. The state bar does not move them to suspended or disbarred because if you disbar someone, what punishment can you give them? That's the biggest punishment you can impose. You can't arrest them. We don't, we've talked about this time and time again with the toothless administrative boards in North Carolina. They have no power besides your job, which, which makes sense. They're not, they're not the police and they're not you know, the, the justice system. But by having these self-regulating bodies that have the people in the profession overseeing their own, and they might say, hey, you know what? I might have not reconciled my books last year. I don't want to make this process any more difficult for me in case I come under the gun. So, yeah, uh, the last thing I'll say about this is, again, we've dealt with this with more than one self-regulating body. Um, we, we saw a ridiculous case with the dentistry board and my own personal experience at Pratt's, you and I have both reported on this, which is the red light camera situation. Yes. The company that did at one point was in charge of Wilmington's red light cameras. Um, had failed to engineer their red light cameras, which is required by state law. Oops. Oops. And state law says, you know, thou shalt. It's pretty biblical, as we mm -hmm. like to say, right? It's thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. And so we actually got the executive director of the, the state's engineering board on the phone. Uh, he was very friendly. Um, he, he actually gave us a lot of his time. He walked us through the history of all this stuff. And I said, okay, I'm looking at the state law, and it says... If you, if you put this thing here, you got it. It has to be engineered. And he said, yes. And I said, it's not engineered. He said, yes. I'm like, so it's illegal. And he said, I'm sorry, I can't say that. He said, the DOJ could say that, but I can't say it. I was like, I can say it. We can say it. Absolutely. This, a three-year-old toddler can say this. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's, um, you know, another story for another time. But the, um, the collection of agencies that oversees the professions are um, weak sauce. Yeah, exactly. And I just, again, just to reiterate the, not that engineering is not important. Red light cameras are very important. No, it is um, important. That's why the board should it, have some power yeah, to do it wrong. Yeah. But when we're talking about a doctor, when we're talking about a dentist who puts you under general anesthesia and can kill you, and we're, when we're talking about a lawyer who can stand between you and going to prison for years, the lack of oversight and the lack of authority and the lack of criminal charges. I've seen several of these grievances that I've been going cross-eyed reading. And the state bar literally says, you committed a crime by doing X, Y, Z. And it just kind of goes by the wayside. I saw one person who was accused of committing a crime by the state bar. And they say, we censure you, which is the strongest bad no-no we can give you besides disbarring you. They didn't take his law license. They accused him of committing uh, tax fraud and you get a censure. Or whatever the whatever the alleged crime might have been, you get a censure. I mean, who else can walk around, commit a crime, be accused of committing a crime, not go in front of a judge or jury, have your bosses 
look at you or an administrative panel look at you and say, bad. Just, we admonish you. Yeah. I, I mean, that's that's all it is. We strongly condemned you for your actions. Now go back to work. There is actually a strongly worded letter that comes along with it. There is. <laughs> all right. Uh, do you want to take a quick break? Yeah, let's take one. All right. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the healing place and billions in opioid settlement money. All right. Welcome back to Port City Politics. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Shockman. And I'm WECT investigative reporter Michael Pratz. And so I'm glad you stuck around Wilmington just long enough for this to kind of close out this story, at least for now. Yeah. So if you'll remember, a couple weeks ago, we talked about some questions about the healing place. Yes, that is the newest, I, I don't even know what to call it anymore. Can we call it a treatment center? Some people certainly do. So it's the newest uh, drug treatment, drug and alcohol treatment facility um, over by the, the hospital area that the county spent millions of dollars building. Yes. And so I want to caveat something up top. Um, neither Pratt's or I is against an emergency homeless shelter for 200 people, a facility that allows people who are into the whole NAAA thing to get recovery, mm -hmm. a place for people to detox. It's a good thing. Absolutely. And I've seen it, you know, firsthand, I've seen it work for uh, lots and lots of people. So I, I definitely don't want to come off as uh, condemning it, not compassionate towards it, um, because I think everybody in this day and age has known at least somebody, if not yourself, who has struggled with uh, addiction, perhaps not homelessness, but addiction, alcoholism, or some other sort of uh, mental health issue that they've needed help with. And I think the, the compassion is kind of turning there uh, in general society. So yes, we are not opposed to that. It is not a, uh, a dig at helping those in recovery. Sure. The issue here come, is, is around two things. One, it is what we mean when we say treatment and what people think they're going to get when they go into treatment. Mm -hmm. And the use of the billions of dollars in opioid settlement money that North Carolina Attorney General Josh Stein negotiated with opioid producers and distributors. Right. So Josh Stein last year, I believe, came down in like the spring of last year, um, talked about the opioid settlement funds as it was all finally coming to fruition and getting paid out. Um, and he was very clear on where he stands with, uh, again, we've talked about this a lot, but with uh, medicated assisted treatment, that is methadone, suboxone, uh, specifically, we're talking opioids, but to a lesser extent, there are some other medicated assisted treatments for, uh, I believe, alcoholism. I'm not positive on any other drugs that really rely on it because methadone, suboxone are really the ones that people use. Uh, they're synthetic opioids that don't necessarily produce the same high that heroin does, helps with the withdrawals, helps with the cravings. So he called that the gold standard, and he drew a line in the sand and said, if you are hoping to get any of this money from opioid treatment or opioid settlement funds, you have to provide medicated assisted treatment. Yeah. Stein's words were, if you're not using evidence-based treatment and evidence-based treatment is MAT, then you are not living up to the guidelines and you cannot use opioid settlement money. So it's a little confusing then when you go back to 2019, early 2019, when New Hanover County was actually the applicant for a special use permit to the city of Wilmington, because mm -hmm. that's where they wanted to build the healing place. Right. I'm not going to go through all the nitty gritty 
Uh, we'll have an article on WHQR and ECT coming out uh, this weekend. It'll get into all of that. But long story short, Chris Coudray got in front of city council, who were very skeptical about this because there was a lot of pushback. Mm-hmm. Some of that was for legitimate security concerns. Some of that is because people take an unfair and stereotypical look at people dealing with addiction. There was a whole range of concerns, some of which were bogus, some of which were real. So Coudray had a tough task. And I believe there was five, maybe six meetings, hours and hours of sworn testimony. Yes. But during the second to last meeting, uh, Coudray got up there and he told the city of Wilmington Council, our job and what we told Trillium we wanted was the very best evidence-based treatment program. Mm -hmm. It's a direct quote. Very best evidence-based treatment program. Flash forward three years, when Josh Stein says evidence-based treatment program, he means MAT. Mm-hmm. Chris Coudray did not mean MAT. Yeah. What he was referring to was the Healing Place of Kentucky, which eventually spun off an LLC that now runs our Healing Place. Right. Which is a not faith-based. And I want to correct myself. I said this on an earlier podcast. They are not faith-based. It is NA slash AA style, mm-hmm. which your higher power can be pumpkin pie, yeah. if that's what you want. Yeah. But there is a spiritual component. There is no MAT component. Yeah, and they actually changed the rules on this. And again, we've talked ad nauseum about this, so we don't need to go into the weeds. But uh, earlier or late last year, they changed course real quickly after all of this came out, uh, saying we're going to now allow people who are taking Suboxone or Methadone to stay in the in the shelter to uh, come here for treatment. And that, you know, that was a big about face. They're still not offering MAT. They will just allow you to stay there. Uh, and that's because the DOJ came out with a statement saying if you uh, if you don't allow somebody into your facility because they're on MAT, uh, you're in violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act, and that is illegal. Yeah. So here's the thing. The Healing Place has defended their model, their uh, peer-led non-medical model, because it is cheap. Yeah. And I don't mean that, hey, I do not mean that derisively, right? I mean, there's not a lot of money floating around to really deal with how deep and serious our opioid and addiction in general crisis is. Mm -hmm. So the idea that they can house people, feed them and clothe them for around $35 a day, which is a tab most local governments can pick up with the help from state and federal funding. So you can charge, they call them clients, but you can charge recovering addicts nothing, nothing a day for months at a time, sometimes over a year, Mm -hmm. right? That is incredible. Again, credit where credit is due. But their abhorrence of MAT goes beyond the bottom line because they were willing to reject prior to the Department of Justice's new guidelines. They said you can't come on the campus of using MAT. That wouldn't impact their bottom line at all. Right. Now, there was some talk about, you know, how people who were on MAT would interact with people who were off it. But again, we're not talking about the bad old days of people, you know, stacking up methadone to get high. We're talking about people who are actually on controlled substances that have naloxone, which is an anti-opioid in it. So you really are not getting, you know, full on high. Right. So it just seemed like there was a philosophical dislike of MAT that they were forced to change because of the DOJ guidance. But there's another reason, another incentive for them to allow MA people, MAT clients or patients onto campus. Here it is. It is the answer to the question that we asked a couple podcasts ago, which is how was Columbus County able to use its opioid settlement money to, quote, reserve some beds at the healing place? Right. So a couple of things we got to unpack here. First, when New Hanover County and the city of Wilmington talked about their 20 plus million dollar slice of this opioid settlement, 
it, it looked like they were taking Josh Dine seriously. They were calling the healing place a treatment center, but it didn't offer MAT, so they didn't put a single cent of opioid settlement money into it. Mm -hmm. That made sense. Yeah. Say what you will about the healing places model, but New Hanover County appeared to be respecting Josh's sign rules. So it was confusing then that Columbus County did that. It turns out the simple answer is that the healing place is not a treatment center. So they say. So they said in an email forcefully, in bold, the word not. We are not a treatment center. So it turns out Josh Stein has talked a really good game about MAT being the gold standard. But there are lots of other things you can do with opioid settlement money. One of them is recovery housing. Mm -hmm. So if you offer people recovery housing, as long as you don't reject people who are on MAT, you can get opioid money. Right. And that is, I don't even, I don't even think it's a loophole. It's just the part of the opioid settlement guidelines Stein didn't talk so loudly about. Right. That allows Columbus County to reserve these bets. Now, since then, uh, Onslow County has looked at this. Brunswick County has also approved money for this. Brunswick County is currently evaluating whether or not they can use opioid funding for this, but they probably will. Mm -hmm. And a real quick point of clarification, both um, Brunswick and Columbus County said that they were reserving beds at the healing place. That's a misnomer, even though that's in the government agenda. Mm -hmm. No one can reserve a bed at the healing place. It is always first come, first serve, all the time, no exceptions. What it means is that if someone gets referred to them by Brunswick or Columbus County, which in some cases, like Brunswick County, includes transportation. So right. Brunswick County will drive you down here, which is nice of them. Yeah. Because transportation is a huge barrier to treatment. Absolutely. Um, if someone from Brunswick County, through a referral, gets into the healing place, then the healing place can bill them, you know, a per diem. Right. For as long as they stay there. And the healing place says this is basically a way. Now, they could do that for free anyway, without a referral, as long as there was no line. Mm -hmm. But this is a way for local governments to support the healing place. Right. So that's all above board. But the, the big takeaway here is that how does the opioid settlement money go to a treatment center that doesn't provide MAT? It's that the healing place says legally they don't consider themselves to be a treatment center, even though the county has discussed them as a treatment center for years. And some of their own online material talks about them offering treatment. Their Facebook page, page describes them as a treatment facility. Mm -hmm. So you can see how people would be freaking confused. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, they're they're playing word gymnastics here and getting down to semantics. Um, and obviously, you know, again, we don't have a whole lot of great transparency here because even though it's funded by the government, it is your taxpayer money. It is your opioid settlement money um, that is yours because the government is not a private corporation. It is for the people, by the people. Um, we don't know what conversations were had behind closed doors about this. We don't know what emails were sent saying, hey, could we get around Josh Stein's statements? And I'm not saying this happened, but we don't know. Did someone say can, we can get around Josh Stein's statements and get our hands on some of that sweet opioid settlement money by just saying, oh, we're not a treatment center anymore. Um, and North Carolina and Josh Stein didn't really define what a treatment center was. So in that sense, I mean, it's a chess game that appears wow. to be playing out here. Well, I mean, I suppose they did define what a treatment center is, but they didn't exclude a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. And the waters have been muddied for so long because people refer to 
in fact, during one city council meeting, during these, you know, multiple SCP hearings, people refer to it as a detox, a rehab, a detoxification, a rehab center, a recovery center, a peer recovery center, mm -hmm. a communal center, a social detox. Yeah. Um, and so who, I mean, you'd forgive anyone whose head was spinning at the end of that. We talked to Chris Coudre, um, who said he didn't, quote, want to ferret out the clinical differences in the words. It's a rough paraphrase of him. It was more or less what he said. Yeah. He doesn't care. For him, it is semantics. Uh, the Healing Place, despite being emphatic that they're not a treatment center, also said this is semantics. The Department of Justice was very tight-lipped. Mm -hmm. They basically said, we're not going to go behind local government and tell them what things actually are. We're not going to police their decisions. Um, and Attorney General Isn't Dustin, that the job of the... Department of Justice? Yeah. Mm. I don't know. Maybe? Probably? Probably. I will also say that we did a couple times ask if um, Attorney Stein had any thoughts about what appears to be an end run around the spirit of his guidelines. Mm -hmm. Forget the actual technical language. Um, you know, if you're going to come down to Wilmington and say, this is the gold standard, this is what this money is for, and then your guidelines don't prevent... We are talking about millions of hours, too. Yeah. You know, for example, um, uh, I believe it is um, Columbus County's investments... If they were to renew them every year because they get a tranche of money every year, they don't get the full right. whack all at once. Columbus County is getting like $7.8 million. Right. They're going to spend, if they stay on this track, around $4 million in opioid settlement money on the healing place. And that's just one county. Yeah. And I also want to kind of point out here that this isn't us making mountains out of molehills. And again, it's not to condemn the healing place who, um, you know, I don't know anybody there, but I... Treatment is a good thing or recovery or whatever, whatever semantic word you want to call it so I don't get sued. Uh, it's a good thing. Nobody's saying it's not. But I think a lot of the onus here needs to fall on Josh Stein, who came down, used these words, and then kind of walks away from it when we actually have questions. Um, had he not said any of this, we wouldn't care what they called it, if they called themselves a treatment center or not. I don't think had I could say this as a journalist. Had he not made the trip down here to Coastal Horizons, which provides MAT, and so context is, is key here. Mm -hmm. He was standing with Margaret Weller Stargle, um, who has been a vocal uh, critic of the Healing Places model and of the whole the way this the whole thing went down, which you know we've been through before. Mm -hmm. You know, in that crowd, saying, "Hey, this is the only way you should be spending this money." I mean, after that, we heard. Um, you know, uh, Wilmington Mayor Bill Saffa was like, I'm reconsidering this. He was one of the in right. favor votes of the SUP. Three years later, he was like, oh, maybe we, we need to reevaluate this. So had he not come down here, made waves, you know, made a, a big pronouncement, I wouldn't have gone through the fine grain of the opioid guidelines. I would have said, hey, money's going to treatment. That's good. Yeah. And so here's the other takeaway is that this article is about the healing place because it has been the number of a it has been the center of a number of controversies here in our area. But this is not going to be the only place where people are going to be able to receive opioid settlement money in a way that Josh Stein did not basically condone in spirit. Forget the letter of the law. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's that's kind of where we can probably leave this right now. Again, can't reiterate it enough. Um, and, you know, it might sound critical of the healing place. It might sound critical of New Hanover County. But in reality, the, uh, again, the onus is in those who made the rules, not enforcing them. And that's, you know, that's where these, where these guidelines fell from was the state level. And, you know, I, can I blame someone for trying to find a workaround to say, oh, no, 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 
we're offering this as well so we can get some of that money, which again is going to a good worthwhile cause. Um, but if you draw a line in the sand and then you kick it over, what's the point? I think that's a good place to leave it. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. And again, it's been a wonderful six years here in Wilmington. I am going to miss it. I will not be gone. I will not uh, be completely out of the loop here. So everybody listening, please behave because I have no problem coming back on WHQR. Um, and hopefully once I get settled in Charlotte, we can uh, have the newest iteration. It will be the third iteration of our podcast, which started at Port City Daily. And they say the third time's the charm. So I've heard. Yeah. So don't don't unfollow this podcast. Yeah, please don't. We uh, we might have something new in the works. Just let me get my uh, get my foot in the door, and then I will start making all the waves up in Charlotte that I have made down here. And hopefully, uh, you can help me out with that. I look forward to it. So, in the meantime, as Brad said, behave, be transparent, or else. All right. Well, we'll see you when we see you.